News Talk 1110-993-WBT, hour number two. Pete Callender here, and I want to welcome to the program uh, Melissa Nicely. She is the spokesperson for Animal Care, uh, Charlotte Mecklenburg Police Animal Care and Control. Melissa, welcome to the program. I feel like I know you. I've been reading your press releases for years, I think. Uh, so, uh, well, thanks so much for uh, sparing some time. I know you're even on vacation, but uh, this is an important topic. And uh, for folks who may not be aware, uh, the uh, the shelter is in pretty bad uh, shape right now as far as the number of kennels uh, left that are open to take new dogs, I guess, specifically, right? So give us sort of an overview, a snapshot of what it looks like now. Sure. Well, thank you for having me this afternoon. I really appreciate the time to kind of get the message out to our community um, because we are merely a reflection of, you know, what's going on in the, the Charlotte community as the community animal our responsibility. Um, so basically, what's kind of what we're what we're kind of measuring is um, we're looking back to to 2019 and the intake numbers that we had there, um, and then we had that great dip in intake um, in 2020. You know, mostly obviously due to COVID, um, people aren't out and about, so they're not seeing stray animals, so they're not coming into the shelter. Um, and then, of course, we got the big boom of adoptions and fosters and staycations uh, because of the pandemic. People were home wanting companions. And so it was a banner year for us in 2020. And then what's happened as, as we've started, started going back to work, intakes, you know, people are seeing the animals again. They're bringing them in. And we are now, Pete, we're at where we were. We're a little above the intake we were in 2019. So... If you think back to about the Charlotte population, too, in the metro area, you know, how many more people have moved to Charlotte since then? And you can always um, take a look at what your human population is, and there's a, there's a great um, figure that you can, can calculate how many animals that you have in your community per the households. And so when you look at that, the growth of Charlotte um, population means that we're going to also have the growth of, of owned pets in our community as well. And right now, a lot of people think that, oh, well, it must be because people are going back to work and they're, they're bringing their owners, surrounding their animals that they adopted during that time. But that's not the case, Pete. It's, it's actually our stray dog numbers that, um, that tend to be on the rise for us. Why is that, do you think? You know, I, I mean, right now we have a perfect storm kind of going on, and that's how I've been you know, talking about it is um, summer months are always big for cats and dogs, um, no matter the shelter, no matter where you are in the country. Um, typically, we see that bump in numbers in the summer. Um, combine that with we've got a number of things that we're holding dogs for. We hold dogs for 10 days for um, quarantine. Um, so that you know, means that a dog is in a kennel for 10 days. So we also see those those numbers usually bump up in the summertime. More people are out, so there's more interactions with dogs getting into scuffles. There's more interaction with people and dogs. So you tend to see your bite numbers go up a little bit in the summer. We also have a couple of pending court cases, um, and a lot of those have large numbers of dogs. So they're taking up kennels, so those kennels are not turning over for the new dogs coming in. And we've got construction going on at the shelter, and just overall, I think more people moving to Charlotte, you know, we, we scratch our heads a lot and we're like, we try to get the message out there that if you're new to Charlotte and you lose your dog, we are the place that you go look for your dog. 
Um, and we wonder, you know, how many people know that, you know, in the community who are brand new. And so we're always trying to continually get that, that message out there as well. So you see my little storm brewing, right? Like we just have less kennels available for more animals that are coming in to the shelter. Right. And um, it, it really makes it hard. <laughs> it makes it really tough. Are there plans? I thought I saw something a couple of weeks back. There were some volunteers that went down to a Charlotte City Council meeting and, um, their comments they were they were calling for more funding from uh for i guess renovations or an additional facility or a new facility and so it got me kind of interested i went and i looked up some of the numbers uh and i or, or some of the uh, the plans and i i i thought i saw but it's been a couple of weeks so i don't know maybe you do is there is there money approved i thought there was there was some allocation but it hasn't gone out the door yet but there is some plan for helping to uh, you know improve the facility well, we are currently have been in um, renovations for a number of years now um, because what happened is a number of years ago, there was plans for a new facility mm-hmm. um, and then the airport uh, did not need to use our land after like many talks about doing a new shelter and we were going to have to leave the land that we're on. So what happened with that is when that got pulled, um, we had to actually go back and look at what needed to be improved at the current facility in order to meet um, Department of Ag standards and then ADA compliance. So all of the renovations that are now being done to the shelter are all for compliance things. So making sure that our lobby and everything is ADA compliant, the whole shelter. Oh, wow. Um, That's where the, yeah, a lot of the funding that has been set aside to do are those types of things. So air conditioning in the kennels and things like that, which when you're getting a new shelter, those things kind of get put on hold because they know you're you're putting money into a new shelter. Right. So that's kind of what we're looking at is we're looking at improvements to meet the current standards, not necessarily like to my knowledge at this point. Now there may be talks that are going on, you know, that I'm not aware of. Sure, sure. I just point, no that explains yeah, it though. Yeah, that explains yeah. it because I saw I went back looking and I said, oh, because that explains why I was confused why people are showing up and asking for money when I saw. There was some money like a year or two ago, but that explains it. Um, so the uh, the the problem is that obviously you need more kennel space. You also need volunteers, right? You need you need people to come down and volunteer, and you need um, people to foster dogs specifically, exactly. right? Exactly, exactly. The biggest things that could help right now. Um, the answer isn't always more kennels, because with more kennels, you need more staff to take care of the additional animals in those kennels. So. What's even better is to get volunteers in to help with some of those things that the, that the kennel assistants do. You know, like come in, walk a few animals so that you have that one-on-one time with the animals. We know that's what volunteers you know, love to do. But while you're there, maybe go do a couple loads of laundry. So then that way the kennel staff doesn't have to stop down. They're working with the animals to, be, to do the laundry. Um, you know, make the Kongs. Um, help do the dog bowls. I mean, when you go in there, we have a industrial-sized dishwasher that we have to do all of the, the dog and cat bowls in every single day. Little tasks like that could really take a load off of the current staff and help a lot. And then fostering, that is key, key, key. The more animals that we have for adoption, 
that do not need our care for some reason. They don't need behavior modification. They don't need medical things. They're ready to go into their new home. Imagine if they were all in homes in our community and not at the shelter, how many more free kennels that would open up for the animals that do need our care. So foster, foster, foster is the answer. And, of course, if uh, people uh, do not help out, you're you're forced to put the animals down. And I think the number I saw was, what, roughly three a day is what's happening now? In June, um, we, we tend to not do euthanasias every single day if we can mm-hmm. so that it doesn't stress the staff out having mm-hmm. to euthanize every day. So there may be a day that we do more than that, but if you average it out over a month, I know in June it was three. In July, the numbers are going to bump up quite a bit because we have that feline panleukopenia outbreak, and we had to unfortunately euthanize quite a bit of kittens and, and cats in July. Mm. So our numbers are going to definitely pop for July. Um, but yeah, so any euthanasias, you know, for space slash behavior or space slash medical are things that we don't want. You yeah. know, we want to be able to only euthanize, and unfortunately we have to, um, euthanize the animals that just aren't really safe for the community to go back out into our community, or else they just have medical needs where humane euthanasia is the right thing to do for them. Yeah. Anything else you want to add that you think is important or interesting to note for folks before I let you go? I just think our staycation program is amazing. Um, You come, you check out an animal for a few days, take it home, and um, just give it a break from the kennels. It frees up a kennel for five days. Sometimes that's enough to get an animal adopted out of that kennel while you have the staycation. And it really gives us a lot of information, Pete, about that dog, you know, like, we learn what it likes, what it doesn't like. And so we have more information when that animal comes back to even find it a, a better home. And um, a lot of times people end up keeping them, which we always love to see. That, I almost wonder if that's, that's the plan, really, <laughs> is you get them to take them home. And then it's like, yeah, look, they're already there. It's, uh... <laughs> Don't give away my secret. <laughs> that's right. Uh, Melissa Nicely, spokesperson for Animal Care and Control. Thanks so much for your time today. I do appreciate it. Talk 1110-993-WBT. Pete Callender here. Thanks again to Melissa Nicely, the uh, public information officer, communications uh, point person for Charlotte-Mecklenburg Police Animal Care and Control. Um, there was also this story at the Charlotte Observer uh, talking about uh, some of the needs at the shelter that uh, cats and small dogs at uh, CMPD's Animal Care and Control Shelter needs some good reading material to line their cages, according to staff. Um, the shelter has over 200 cages that are lined each day with fresh newspaper. One cage might use an entire section of the newspaper, which is like, yeah, the big news here was that newspapers actually have multiple sections still. To me, that was, wasn't even aware. I thought they'd cut all of that out. Um... She says they're using so much, they're running low. The shelter goes through about 50 full newspapers a day, which I think the Charlotte Observer counts towards its reader count. Every single case, like, that's at least 10. They got some weird, yeah, they're like a bit of a weird system in extrapolating out how many times a newspaper is read 
and that counts towards their circulation. Have you ever heard this? Like a single newspaper is not it's like in what what I would assume that if I sold you a newspaper that I would count that as one, right? A subscription would be one unit in the circulation uh, number, but uh, apparently no. They say that uh, their newspapers are read by multiple people. And I, I can see that, right? You leave the newspaper uh, on the table at the restaurant or something, and someone else comes along and they may read through it. So how do you capture that number? Oh, I'm sure there's some metrics involved, some ESG-like calculations and such. I forget what the, I forget what the ratio is, but I remember the number being ridiculous. <laughs> I remember it being a little, a little ridiculous, too high, right? Like a single newspaper is read 30 times or something. I forget what the number was. It's been years. Anyway, uh, capacity at the shelter remains a concern. They got 24 cats, 53 kittens, 138 dogs, 24 puppies currently being housed. The shelter space, uh, uh, space issues contributed to a 40% jump during the summer in the number of dogs that were put down or euthanized. It's a lot. It's a lot. You can adopt, you can foster, and if you can't do, or the staycation program that Melissa talked about as well. Um, I always say this about a great many different things, but uh, if we want government to do less, we need to do more, right? We are called to do these things. So um, if you if you have the heart and you have the ability to do it, uh, look into the programs, maybe help an animal out, Um People can adopt, foster, bring newspapers to the shelter. It's at 8315 Byram Drive. Now, I think the Charlotte Observer can also uh, do a little bit more here. Follow me. Better content equals more print copies sold equals shelter cage liners. So if McClatchy is better, you know, be best, McClatchy. If you are, you know, be better, do it for the dogs. Do it for the animals. If not for the conservatives that have, you know, long felt shunned by your paper, if you can improve the content and attract more readers, then the animals will win. That's my plea. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. All right, so a federal judge ruled that North Carolina's ban on abortions after 20 weeks of pregnancy can be enforced now. This was uh, expected because of the U.S. Supreme Court ruling in the Dobbs case that tossed aside Roe v. Wade and KCV Planned Parenthood, got rid of those uh, those federal laws, the national rules, got rid of that. It's now reverting back to the states. In my opinion, that is as it should be and as it always should have been. The fact that we're still fighting over it, you know, 48 years later, indicates that the court erred 
in its decision initially. It did not settle the matter. In a court order yesterday, U.S. District Judge William Osteen lifted an injunction that had blocked the ban, declaring that the injunction went against the Supreme Court ruling that struck down Roe v. Wade. Neither this court, nor the public, nor counsel, nor providers have the right to ignore the rule of law as determined by the Supreme Court, the judge wrote. This is a story at the Charlotte Observer by Luciana Perez Uribe Gunasi, and uh, she says the 20-week abortion ban in dispute had been on the books in some form since 1973. It prohibited abortions after the first 20 weeks of pregnancy, with limited exceptions for medical emergencies after 20 weeks. But it has not been enforced recently. By recently, she means since 1973, right? North Carolina has legally allowed abortion until the standard of fetal viability. And the reason for that was because that's the standard that Roe created. And Casey, well, kind of changed, but it doesn't matter. They're gone. So point is, that was the fetal viability standard. And... That was generally considered to be 23 or 24 weeks of pregnancy. And, of course, as science has gotten better, uh, the viability uh, age keeps getting younger, which is an inconvenient thing for uh, the pro-abort crowd. So uh, now with Roe and Casey gone, North Carolina's law was supposed to have kind of taken effect again. But there was an injunction ordered by this judge Uh, what, like a year ago or so, two years, I forget, Uh, there was an injunction put in place because I think somebody sued or it it doesn't matter. He had said you can't enforce this because it violates Roe v. Casey or uh, Roe versus Wade and Casey v. Planned Parenthood. It it violates the current federal law. Well, when the federal laws go away, now it's not violating those laws anymore. And so the legislature was kind of waiting on Attorney General Josh Stein to do his job, but of course that would require him to do his job. And so he didn't, of course, because he doesn't. And so, uh, I mean, he's got a lot of things going on. He's running for governor, for crying out loud, right? Priorities, people. So he did not want to go down. Stein did not want to go down and, and ask for this injunction to be lifted. Because politically, it didn't behoove him. Screw the rule of law. It, that, that's irrelevant. Because he knew what was going to happen, just like the state lawmakers knew what was going to happen. The judge would lift the order. The judge would lift the injunction because there isn't any controlling federal law any longer. So Stein looks at the equation and sees politics, right? Rather than looking at the equation as the attorney general, the top law enforcement officer of our state, instead of looking at it and saying, well, Okay, then we have to lift the injunction. And you would just go to the court and say, you can lift the injunction because the federal law is no longer there. That's not taking a position. That's, well, it is taking a position, which is following the rule of law, right? But why press the issue? Why take a stand for the rule of law when all you see is downside? Because that's all there is for him on that, politically. There was only downside. I mean, may, like I would come on and say, Good job, Josh Stein, doing his job, even though I know he probably didn't want to do that, but he did the right thing. But what is that going to get him? I'm never going to vote for the guy. So even if I say, good job, he's not going to win my vote for that. But, but leftists might be very upset with him if he went down there and said, hey, 
we should just apply the rule of law. They get very mad at that sort of thing. So uh, he so he looked at it and he said, politically, it's more advantageous for me to sit on my hands and not do my job, which he's very good at, not doing his job. And so the legislature said, hey, yo, Josh, what's going on? You want to you do something here? And he said, no. And so they're like, fine, we'll do it ourselves. And so they went down and asked. The 20-week ban has exceptions. So in case you were wondering, it has exceptions for medical emergencies defined as a condition which, in reasonable medical judgment, so complicates the medical condition of the pregnant woman as to necessitate the immediate abortion of her pregnancy to avert her death or for which a delay will create a serious risk of substantial and irreversible physical impairment of a major bodily function, not including any psychological or emotional conditions. This is what the General Assembly drew up recently, like uh, within the last couple of years. This is why it got uh, litigated, why there was the injunction, because the Republican-controlled legislature passed this law and Democrats were very upset, but they did not want, and there were actually some Democrats who signed on to this, if I recall correctly, but what they were saying here is they, they do not want to allow abortion providers to use essentially a loophole, which is if the woman goes in and says, I want an abortion, and um, it's, it's after the 20-week ban, and they say, the, the woman says, or sorry, the, the person, the birthing person says, um, <laughs> the birthing person would say, I don't want to have this child because I would suffer psychological long-term psychological effects if I have to have the baby. And so then they'd be like, okay, check the box, long-term, you know, medical effects. And so they put this language in to say, no, no, not including any psychological or emotional conditions. You don't get to use that as a loophole, right? It has to be life of the mother is in jeopardy, right? There's some sort of physical health component, like you're going to die or there's some long-term impact, whatever. So that they were trying to narrowly tailor this. In a statement last month, Josh Stein, the attorney general, said his office would not ask a judge to reinstate the ban and that his agency would not take action that would restrict women's ability to make their own reproductive health care decisions, which, of course, it's not that his office isn't doing that. The North Carolina DOJ is not doing that. The law does that. And you asked for the gig to uphold the law. You asked for the gig. You took the oath to say that you would do that. He said protecting the ability is more important. That ability is more important than ever as states across the nation are banning abortions in all instances, including rape and incest. Okay, is that what happened in North Carolina? You're in North Carolina, dude. Senate leader Phil Berger and House Speaker Tim Moore asked the judge to reverse it. Uh, Republicans are not official parties to the lawsuit. Uh, Berger and Moore wrote, North Carolina's abortion statutes are undeniably lawful under the Dobbs ruling, and there's no longer any basis for an injunction to shackle the state from pursuing its legitimate interests, which raises another aspect to this story, uh, another aspect to this issue, um, the fear mongering, the fear mongering over the reversal of Roe v. Wade. We'll get to that in a minute.
Talk 1110 and 99.3 WBT. Brittany Bernstein at uh, National Review doing a column, Media Double Standard. She calls it her Forgotten Fact Checks. Uh, It's been nearly two months since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, and despite the assertions of many liberals, the sky is not falling. However, many liberals and the mainstream media remain in a state of breathless panic in covering abortion and the right. Several mainstream media outlets latched onto a story about the arrest of a mother and daughter in Nebraska. The mother was arrested for giving her daughter a chemical abortion pill after the prescribed gestation limit, and the daughter was arrested for allegedly trying to burn and then bury the aborted child. Forbes reported that Facebook gave Nebraska cops a teen's direct messages so they could prosecute her for having an abortion. NBC went with the Facebook turned over chat messages between mother and daughter now charged over abortion. The Daily Beast claimed that Facebook turned over messages in disturbing abortion case against teen and mom. Right, the disturbing part is the turning over of the direct messages, not the, the chemical-induced abortion at home and the, the burning and the burying of the corpse. No, none of that. That's not the disturbing part. More than half a dozen other outlets framed the story in similar ways. But the headlines are, you're going to be surprised at this, they're a little deceiving. Just a little bit. See, the 17-year-old faces no criminal charges for taking the abortion pills at 23 weeks pregnant. That is an age, by the way, which 25% of prematurely born children will, in fact, survive outside the womb. Outside the womb. Nebraska has a law prohibiting abortions after 20 weeks, like North Carolina's. This is because no pro-life state punishes a mother that receives an abortion, right? So the 17-year-old did not face any charges for the act. Celeste Burgess is accused of removing, concealing, or abandoning a dead body. Also, concealing the death of another person. Also, false reporting. After the pills caused the death of her unborn child, she and her mother tried to first burn and then bury the remains. She and her mother initially told investigators that she had miscarried. Right? That's why the false report. She lied. Facebook was served with a search warrant by detectives who discovered messages of the two women discussing their intention to get the, quote, thing out of Burgess and burn the evidence afterwards. Only the mother, Jessica Burgess, faces charges for administering the chemical abortion pills to her daughter. Why? She has no medical license. And it was beyond the 20-week limit. Medication abortion taken after 10 weeks of pregnancy greatly increases the risk of complications and oftentimes necessitates further medical care. So what does that mean? It means that mom put her daughter's life at risk. She jeopardized her daughter's life by playing doctor. The Atlantic, or sorry, the alleged crimes, by the way, This seems kind of important. It all occurred before Roe v. Wade (laughs) was overturned. Yeah. It all all was pre-Dobbs. So nothing that the Supreme Court did made this story happen, made these women do the thing. This was before the Dobbs case came down or the ruling came down. 
The Atlantic publication claimed in a recent article that it's the right who has a new boogeyman in the abortion debate. That's what they said. New boogeyman. Who's the boogeyman? Jane's Revenge. Jane's Revenge. The article describes Jane's Revenge as a, quote, mysterious pro-abortion rights group. That's one thing to call them, I guess. That's claiming credit for acts of vandalism around the country. And right-wing activists and politicians are eating it up, which is the equivalent of Republicans pounce. Republicans are seizing on this vandalism, right? They're pouncing on these destructive acts in order to paint us as vandalizing destructors or destructive vandals. The article says that pro-abortion rights activists have engaged in vandalism in recent weeks. It was fiery, but mostly peaceful. Uh, The blog posts associated with Jane's Revenge are actively encouraging the behavior, in fact. But then it underplays the political violence, saying, that does not imply the existence of a complex, coordinated campaign of violence. See, that's the that's the standard, I guess, now for the left, because it's, it'll change. Right. If there's a if there's a loose affiliation of millionaires and billionaires and babies. No, I'm kidding. If there's if there's a loose affiliation of some right wingers and they get together and they go out and, you know, torch some cars or uh, break some windows, spray paint some stuff on some buildings. That would be, you know, a complex, coordinated campaign of violence. What do we just hear? Sorry. Homeland Security put out some other report again, right? Beware of the right-wing violence. This is why, you know, they're uh, they're all so concerned. Like, you can't call for defunding the FBI despite all of these examples of corruption. You can't say that sort of thing because if you say that sort of thing, then that means uh, that you're inciting violence. And and, and you you are anti-law enforcement, right? They're trying to criminalize speech. That's what they're doing when it's of the right. But on the left, it's just, you know, eh, just a couple of kids running around engaging in violence. Of course, they fail to mention that a lot of terrorist groups throughout history can do terrible violence without operating in a centralized manner. All right, we're going to talk about schools up next.